Oral Health Voice, Episode 108, Dental Assistance. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What is a dental assistant and why is it a great healthcare career? Dr. Emily Bowen from the Mountain Empire Community College Dental Assistant Program joined me to discuss oral health. Welcome, Dr. Bowen. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate your time being with us today. And I was wondering, you know, looking at your background stuff, how did you first get interested in oral health? Oh, goodness. If, I, if I'm if i totally honest, I was probably a weird little child who was interested in it as early as the third grade. I don't even remember a time when it wasn't on my radar, but that's when my parents told me that I started talking about potentially being a dentist or something. Um, I think as I grew up and I went through high school and everything, uh, if you asked me what I was going to be doing with my life, I would tell you exactly where I'm going to college and then I'm going to dental school after that. And so I knew my major and everything and I stuck to it. It is some weird way. I don't know that there was ever a time that I wasn't thinking about it in some way. Sure. And of course, you did all that and you, you went to dental school and got your degree and now... You're the director of the Mountain Empire Community College's dental assistant program. That is correct, yes. What's a dental assistant? So a dental assistant is really the heartbeat of the office, I think, in a lot of ways. They are the the hands for the dentist. They are also sort of the, the face of the office in many ways. A lot of patients will connect to the assistant even more so than the doctor. But this person is the one who is the gopher for many things, will help with different really complicated procedures sometimes will put anxious patients and little kids that are nervous or excited and hyper they'll kind of put them at ease and just really make that dental appointment as easy and as seamless as possible. So why did Mount Empire decide to launch this program? So we were very fortunate. We found a grand opportunity and we saw a need. There is a huge need for our dental assistant dentist, dental hygienist, like all the entire, we'll just run the spectrum of the dental workforce in Southwest Virginia in particular. Although my numbers might not be exact, the average for the nation is around 60 dentists per 100,000 residents. Virginia sits around that. We might actually have just a little bit better, like 61, 62, something in that, that range. Southwest Virginia is less than half of that. We have about 20 to 24 dentist per 100,000 residents in Southwest Virginia counties. Marshall University did a study a few years ago that looked at rural Appalachia, which where Mountain Empire sits in far Southwest Virginia and Big Stone Gap, we are in Central Appalachia. And in parts of rural Appalachia, there are as few as four dentists per 100,000 residents. So the, the dental need is huge here. And dental assisting is a great way to start and also strengthen the workforce and really provide another another access to care, like a, another point of access for our patients. So we really realized the need and we we saw that there was a grand opportunity. And so we pursued it. We were very fortunate to get full funding. Initially, we went back and, and got some additional grant dollars. So after all of that, we have a three operatory clinic. So if you're not familiar with that term, it's basically three chairs or like three bays. And it is set up in our classroom to be to mimic a private practice office as closely as we can. 
And so then we have a small lab and a classroom space as well for our students. But to answer your question, we really saw a need in Southwest Virginia. We consistently have more job openings than we do graduates, which really shows that there's a, a an ongoing need um, that although we are fulfilling part of it, that there is still a huge turnover in this market and there's a, a huge deficit that we really need to, to fill and focus on more. Why should students in Southwest Virginia consider being a dental assistant? One of the first things that I always tell students, and I think it's really interesting when we look at the Gen Z population coming out right now, they are focused on lifestyle and work-life balance more than any other generation in the past. And so that's one of the first questions I ask students when they come through high schoolers or whatever. I'm like, do you like going home and doing whatever, you know, in the evenings, whether it's a hobby, whether it's playing sports, whether it's watching TV or hanging out with your dog, like, what do you like to do in the evenings? And they always tell me they've got something. And then my next question is, well, what do you do on the weekends? Like, do you like your weekends? Well, yeah, who doesn't love a free Saturday afternoon? And then I ask, well, what about holidays? Like, do you like spending holidays with your family? And yeah. So then I turn that back around and I'm like, guess when the dentist office is never really open on weekends, evenings, and holidays. But when is the hospital always open? Weekends, evenings, and holidays. It's a really great opportunity if people are looking for that work-life balance. And I think after the pandemic, that was even more of a highlight. There was a lot of provider burnout, a lot of workforce burnout. And so I think people became more cognizant of that. They're very much aware of what do I want to have outside of work and what does that look like? So for dental, I think that that is a really traditionally very structured time frame in a lot of offices. I think it's something around 90% of dental offices in Virginia are privately owned small businesses. So if you're looking at it from that perspective, um, if you want to kind of have uh, ownership of something, it's a really good opportunity for that. The income, the salary, the benefits, those are all really good as well. But I think more than anything, that lifestyle component is very attractive to a lot of students who are looking for a career and not just a job. Sure, because we've all seen the news articles about healthcare provider burnout, especially during the pandemic and in the aftermath of the pandemic. So if you're interested in health, but interested in having a life in addition to a career, oral health might be the way to go. Absolutely. And I think it also, you know, beyond that, that's a big component. And I think that that's something that's really kind of a hot topic right now. But I also ask students, what are you interested in? And if I start hearing certain things like, well, I want to help people. I want to get back to my community. You can do that in a lot of roles, dental being one of them. And I, I would certainly endorse that. Um, but I also look for things that they they like to tell me that they do. Like, I like to be creative. I think I'm artistic. Well, fantastic. There's a huge aesthetic component to dentistry. If people are concerned about their smile and how it looks and and being able to be a part of that, even down to assistance, um, my students this week are having a practical on temporary crowns and they're making that. And they're taught to kind of mimic the existing tooth structure as closely as possible because we want our patients to leave not looking like anything has really happened or something. You know, if they came in with a chipped tooth or whatever and they're leaving now and with a temporary People don't want that to be really obvious. So if someone tells me, I really, I'm artistic, I like working with my hands, I have attention to detail, like I, I, you know, I don't like the big picture, I like the fine detail things, 
all of those things, I'm like, you should consider dentistry. <laughs> That's a perfect opportunity for you to shine. Yeah, I've told uh, students who are thinking about oral health to take a sculpting class and and see how that feels to them. And maybe that's something they want to do because, you know, I've had two crowns put in. Yeah, that whole tooth structure needs to be reshaped. I had a student, one of my best ones was a photographer. That was kind of her side gig. And, um, but she just had an eye for the color match and everything that honestly was even better than me. Like I, and I'm not ashamed to say that. Like she, she really had a talent for it. And so I think when you can hone in on those skills that people already have and just utilize them in a different way that that might not have been something that she ever thought of before, but she was very talented in that way. And so if we can can harness that and, and take advantage of it, it's, it's a win-win. What do students need to know about the program at MECC in particular? Our program is a year-long program. We start in the summer, we go fall, and then they'll graduate in the spring semester we are currently undergoing accreditation. So we are pursuing national accreditation with CODA. This is the same Commission on Dental Accreditation. It's the same organization that accredits dental schools, hygiene programs, residency programs. They they kind of hold all that in the academic realm. And so we're pursuing that. So our curriculum is set up to meet those standards. So we have three semesters. Our students will be doing clinicals two of those semesters, and they'll be doing 150 hours each semester for a total of 300 hours. They'll be doing it in multiple offices, um, mostly private practice, although we do have some specialty offices as well where they may be able to visit. It is a rigorous course. It does require a lot of work and a lot of effort, but it is very doable and it's very rewarding. I think that all of my students who are still working in the dental field and who have come out, you know, they've talked about how much they learned and how much they really gained from the program. I would also really recommend if someone is considering this, um, it is a possibility in Virginia to do chair-side assisting, meaning that you can walk in off the street and if a dentist is willing to hire you and train you on site, that you can be trained there. However, I think that going through a formal educational process, it is so important because there are things that we really stress and we kind of explain the logic behind it too. So the first one that comes to mind is infection control, for example. We have a semester long class on infection control. They'll get multiple certifications in it. And we really stress to them, and, and that's actually some of the chapters in the very beginning, the, the foundation that we set how bacteria spreads, how viruses spread, what can we do to prevent this? And if they understand the reason behind it, they're much more apt to follow those infection control protocols. And I think from a patient perspective, all of us have been patients at one time or another, whether in a dental clinic or a health setting, but we wanna ensure that we're being taken care of and that we're safe and that all of these rules are followed. So I would really, um, Talk to the, the students about the importance of that formal education and, and what we have to offer here with that. Is there any financial aid available for students? Absolutely. There is always financial aid available and different options. There are some programs for Virginia residents through the Virginia Community College system. There is a G3 initiative that was started under the previous uh, governor's administration, and it is really focused on getting in, getting skills, and then getting back into the workforce in a, a pretty quick 
manner. And so dental assisting, dental hygiene, like pretty much any, almost, I want to say almost any, maybe not every single one. Um, I can think of one exception under sports management, I think, but pretty much any health science program will qualify as that. So that provides funding for for students. There are a lot of private scholarships available through uh, on our campus. The foundation does a fantastic job doing fundraisers regularly and having local scholarships available for students in addition to all the financial aid options. I think out of the 50-some graduates that we've had now, or almost 50, I think we're at almost 50 graduates, I think that I've had one student actually had to pay out of pocket for anything. Um, the vast majority of my students do get financial aid, which is important. I mean, that's a that's a huge incentive, I think, also to choose these programs and to consider the community college system when you're talking about coming out of school with substantial debt. It, it's a wise financial decision to to look at that. What else should our listeners know about the dental assistant program at MECC? So we have a kind of an interesting program too, a partnership with Germana Community College that is located in the Fredericksburg area. They were the only school in the state uh, to offer expanded function dental assisting or DA2 program. So Mountain Empire actually partnered with Germana to offer a satellite version of that curriculum as well. So for those of you all who are not familiar with this, it's not exactly apples to apples comparison, but it's as close to a mid-level provider as dentistry has. So when we look at our friends in medicine, they have physician's assistants, they have nurse practitioners. Expanded function dental assisting, they will work under the licensure of a dentist and they will work under the direct supervision of a dentist. They can do any reversible procedure. So kind of in layman's terms, the dentist will still drill your tooth, but this individual can fill your tooth. So that's the reversible part. If the filling doesn't work out for whatever reason, that can be replaced. We cannot undrill your tooth or unextract a tooth. We can't put it back in. So those are the limitations that they have. It's only reversible procedures, but we are now the second institution in the state of Virginia to offer this. And it is a phenomenal opportunity. It's again, increasing access to care, which in rural communities is so, so crucial. We have dental offices with wait lists that are literally months long. And these individuals might be able to get in there and assist with some of the treatment of those those patients, which would be really important from a practice ownership standpoint. We had a dentist who employed just one dental expanded function dental assistant, our DA2, we call them. After hiring just one, they saw a 30% increase in production at their office. So from a financial standpoint, that's also huge. Not only are we treating more patients, but you know we're doing it in an efficient manner. So that is a career pathway that a lot of people don't know about, but it's a really fantastic opportunity for people in the dental industry to broaden their career, broaden their skill set, but still effectively work in the same setting. Those credentials, there's three separate ones. And it's kind of like an a la carte option. You can do one, two, or all three of them, depending on what, what you want to utilize in your own office. But each one of those uh, certificates will be a semester long. Worst case scenario, three semesters, like a, approximately a year and a half in or a, a full calendar year if you go summer semester. That's a huge advantage 
that you have in the job market and again to offer to your patients. So I think that that's a real highlight of our program. Poor oral health is one of the most common stereotypes about people in Appalachia. But like many stereotypes, some of that's based in reality. You mentioned the lack of providers. Are there other reasons why poor oral health is such a problem in the region? Yes, I think that there are several reasons. One of the things that pops into my mind uh, is infrastructure and just the lack of infrastructure that we have in central Appalachia, as well as in rural communities. So fluoridated water, for instance, when you look at Virginia as a whole, it looks really wonderful. It it looks like we have 95, 97% um, fluoridated water rates throughout the state, which is pretty fantastic. But when you start teasing that out, by certain localities, there's one county in our service district that our that my community college works with. They have less than 20% of their public water is fluoridated. Now, when you look at that, the numbers even closer, you realize in rural areas how many people are still reliant on well water, how many people are still reliant on spring water um, or other types of, of sources. It, it really starts to cut down on that fluoridation. Well, we know also that fluoridated water can reduce cavities, I think by as much as like 25% or something like that. So that's a huge disadvantage where our, our patients don't have access to fluoridated water regularly. And, and so it's, it's doing a disservice there. That's one big preventative health measure that other localities may have that our residents don't have. In addition to that, I think in the last few years, there's been a lot more conversation surrounding telemedicine and teledentistry. And I often joke with my students, I'm like, we can't drill and fill over the internet yet, but just wait. Like, But I do think that there are a lot of benefits from telemedicine and teledentistry. And if we don't have broadband access to support that, we have to take that off the table. Our, our patients can't use that if they don't have reliable internet connection or cell phone signal or anything like that. I think about it particularly when you're, you're meeting up with specialists. So I live in the Lenawisco district of Virginia, and currently we have one dental specialist. That's an orthodontist who comes in our district one day a week. They, they visit on Tuesdays. They have a primary office outside of our area. And that, that doctor is wonderful and fantastic. I'm very grateful for, for their partnership and everything. But it's just not enough. That's, that's not enough. We have no pediatric specialist in our area. We have no oral surgeons. We have no periodontists. Looking at teledentistry as a means or a way to alleviate some of the burden from our patients, if we can do consults with an oral surgeon or with a pediatric dentist, if we can do you know, some follow-up care. Okay, say our, our patient had an extraction. Is it possible that they go back to their general dentist, do a teledentistry, telemedicine consult with their oral surgeon, and have that follow-up there with a general dentist, having that oral surgeon supervise it or something? I realize that there are a lot of legalities and a lot of policy things that also need to happen with this, but if we're not talking about broadband, if we're not talking about water infrastructure as it relates to healthcare, I think we're missing a big component of the puzzle. Well, no one who's a regular listener for this podcast would be surprised to see that I support broadband initiatives, uh, except still waiting for it at my house. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. But also, I'm on a well and don't have fluoridated water either. Are there options for people like me? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's important to have that conversation with your dentist. When I was younger, 
and, and this still happens sometimes, um, you can take additional fluoride treatments when you're with the dentist, whether it be varnish, whether it would be any of the paste or anything that they can prescribe. Um, as a child, I had fluoridated vitamins. I was always a little mad that I couldn't have the Flintstones when every time we went to Walmart or whatever, but they tasted the same. They were just square. They, they weren't fun cartoon shapes. But in a very simple over-the-counter um, remedy, if you will look for fluoride rinses, there are a lot of mouth rinses that will have fluoride in it. Use that regularly a couple times a day. Also do fluoridated toothpaste and go with a name brand. I know that that look for like the ADA seal of recognition on it. That will help a lot. I think that it was very trendy a few years ago on TikTok and Pinterest and whatever to use kind of alternatives for whitening and and who knows what else was going on. But I think if we stick to our tried and true products that we know and, and that have have a good reputation. There are a lot of fluoridated supplements that we can we can use on a regular basis that will certainly help. Now, switching gears entirely, you recently participated in the Appalachian Leadership Institute. Tell me about that experience. It was fantastic. The ARC has a an educational component to it. So if you're not familiar, the ARC is Appalachian Regional Commission, and they do have an educational component to it, one of which is the Leadership Institute. And so they take applicants from all 13 states. They have 40 applicants um, or 40 cohort members, excuse me, they select 40 cohort members. And you go through a period of nine months and it they meet in in different parts of the Appalachian region. And we talk about some of the things that we've just talked about. We've talked about workforce issues. We talk about infrastructure. Uh, we talk about cultural heritage of the Appalachian area, um, how to to build a capacity in our communities, how to network better together um, and look for opportunities there to strengthen strengthen the area. Um, I could not recommend it enough. And I, if anybody is interested, they are welcome to learn more about it or to reach out to me. Um, it, it was a it, it was a really phenomenal opportunity and I cannot be more grateful for it the speakers that they had, just the different perspectives. And you realize Appalachia is a lot smaller than you think it is. And a lot of the communities are facing the same challenges. I'm a big fan of working smarter, not harder, and not recreating the wheel all the time. So if one community has figured out a great thing about public health and like a community outreach program or something and how to get maybe involve their faith-based communities to, to reach another subset of the population or something. You know, if we can take that model and adapt it and put it into practice in, in your in your hometown, I mean, that's a win for sure. So it's a really wonderful opportunity to, to highlight the region, everything that we have going for it, look at a lot of the challenges, but also effective ways of addressing them. And I think it's really helpful, too, that it comes from insiders. We know the challenges of not having broadband, like you just mentioned, or not having water sources or not having whatever that case may be, fill in the blank. We know those challenges. We know the the, the poverty, the, the, the things that, that hold true to Appalachia, but we know so much more about it. And it's not just an outsider looking in, telling us what's wrong, but it's someone who's lived here and who's very invested in the area, wanting to make a difference. And I think that that's what really sets us apart. 
What should people consider if they're interested in applying to the Institute? It's a time commitment for sure. Like I said, the program runs nine months. And during that time, you will take, I think it's seven weeks of in-person sessions. But we had in my cohort people from their 20s all the way up into their 60s, probably. And so it's just people at different stages of life. But we were all very fortunate to have great support systems back home to watch kids, to watch pets, to, to, to hold down the fort at home. Employers need to be on board as well. You will have to get recommendation from your employer or supervisor because it is a big commitment. And so they want to make sure that everybody's on the same page on what this will involve. But I would say absolutely apply. Go for it. Even if it doesn't work out, you can reapply, do it again. But it is a a wonderful opportunity. And I would love to see more healthcare providers involved in this as well. Um, we've had a few in the past. We had a couple of healthcare associated with um, my cohort. But healthcare is something that I think maybe doesn't get the spotlight it deserves in Appalachia sometimes. And so it would be wonderful to, to really see that as take a, take a bigger spotlight in that, in that program. I often see healthcare viewed as, especially in rural areas, viewed as charity and not a profession or an economic driver or a position of leadership. But, you know, we look at, at the healthcare providers in rural communities that's a, a major employer in most of our rural areas. Absolutely. So I think in a lot of, you know, you may have industries that are very dominant, particularly in my community, coal. Coal was king for a long time, but coal's on its way out. And so, um, you know, we, we kind of are looking at what other things will, will fill that gap. Healthcare and education are two of the biggest employers right now for our area, it's funny that when you think about workforce, I think a lot of people go to these very technical skills. Um, we look at welding workforce, you know, that that type of the the traditional workforce imagery that we see a lot. Um, but the reality is that the healthcare workforce should be front and center also because we're all affected by it in some way, shape or form. I think you're right. It, it doesn't always take a spotlight, but I think that that's one thing that's changing, hopefully, and that we can really spotlight. Again, post-pandemic, you know, we've talked a lot about burnout and some career changes, either for or against it. Um, but I think people started really looking at that as a larger unit, like a, work, a component of the workforce, rather than that's just like a, a job that someone has as a dental assistant or a nurse or whatever, a doctor. So last question, the question I ask all my guests, if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? I have always been a firm believer that preventative care is the best care. If we can prevent something from ever happening or catch it early, then that is by far the best case scenario for our patients. We know that it reduces um, expenditures in the long run. We have better health outcomes, all of that stuff. So I would say if we could do anything to really improve rural health, we've got to do better on the preventative side of it, whether that be through uh, one of my favorites is patient education and patient literacy. If we can increase patient literacy and let, particularly with dental, um, let patients understand 
how dental care affects their overall care and their systemic care. That's so crucial. I think people still silo dentistry out and they think that I've got a toothache, I'll go deal with it then. That's an emergency, I'll tackle it then. But they don't realize that the link that that might have to diabetes, to cardiovascular health, to a whole list of things. And so if we can start educating patients at a very early age, one of my favorite projects to do with my students is always we go out during National Children's Dental Health Month in February. We talk to elementary school kids about basic things, brushing, flossing, going to the dentist. And it's amazing how many little guys will tell me like, I have had a toothache or I've got a cavity and look at this. If we can prevent that, just imagine the the trajectory it may have on their life if we can improve it at an early age and we can start educating them early on about the importance of brushing and flossing and just taking care of themselves, it's going to have huge implications long term. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Barr. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. That's Dr. Emily Bowen with her desire to provide access to preventative care and patient education. Want to talk directly to members of Congress about rural health issues? Join Vera J. in Washington, D.C. this February for the Rural Health Voice Policy Institute. Event links are in the show notes. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association. 